Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Here on Stolen Lives, we discuss brutal and heartbreaking crimes against children. Themes may include child murder, torture, and sexual domestic and child abuse. I do try my best to remain respectful for the babies in these stories and leave out unnecessary details that honestly, none of us need to know to understand the frustration of why and how this ever happened. However, if you find any of these themes triggering, this podcast may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. For most of us, we cannot fathom taking someone's life. But for the mother we will talk about today, she would spend months researching how she would take the life of her six-year-old son. May 2022. Minnesota police pulled over a vehicle with a blown tyre and a shattered back window. Officers could not imagine what this routine traffic stop would uncover. In the trunk of this car was the mutilated remains of a child. This is what happens when a vulnerable child is fouled by the courts and the child protection agencies designed to protect him, but instead placed him right into the hands of a monster. This is Eli's story. Two thousand and thirteen, nineteen-year-old Julissa Thaler met and fell head over heels for nineteen-year-old Tori Hart. The two moving in together after dating just a couple of months. Their relationship, according to Tori, was great for the first two years. At this time, Julissa became pregnant with their first and only child. This is when Julissa stopped taking her medication and her mental health started to deteriorate. Now, Julissa's adolescence was difficult. From age 13, she spent time in and out of mental institutions where she was treated for depression, borderline personality disorder and a mood disorder. I want to take the time now to get this out of the way. There is no correlation between Julissa's mental illnesses and what she ends up doing to her son. There are many, many mothers and fathers out there with depression and other mental health disorders that are absolutely fantastic parents. But this does contribute to the background and to the kind of person Julissa was and is. During her final year of high school, Julissa dropped out and ran away from home. For about six weeks, she lived on the streets, where she developed an addiction to drugs and alcohol. But by the time she met Tori, she'd received treatment and was taking the suitable medication to get a handle on her mental illnesses. Julissa, by all accounts, was doing well. But then she became pregnant. She didn't want to hurt her growing baby, so she stopped taking this medication against her doctor's orders. Medication she relied a lot on to keep her stable, and that's when things fell apart. Julissa and Tori's relationship deteriorated very quickly, and Julissa would start what would be a pattern of making up domestic abuse complaints against him as well as her own father. Julissa would contact police and claim that Tori had hurt her during an argument, and that he threatened to kill her with a shotgun. 
Another time, she would claim Tori had threatened to kill her if she'd ever left him. Julissa withdrew her complaint just three days later, even admitting to police that her mental health issues were the reason she accused Tori of things he didn't do. But this kept happening. The couple would have a fight and Julissa would report Tori to police for being abusive. I cannot imagine how this affected Tori. Here is a woman he loved who was the mother of his child, potentially destroying his reputation with these false allegations. It all became too much, and in 2016, Tori and Julissa split for good. Two years and change later, in 2019, Julissa turned up uninvited to Tori's sister's wedding. This would be the first time he had seen her since they split up. She hadn't even allowed him to see their son. But after this, Julissa contacted the police in St Paul, Minnesota, and accused Tori of putting a nail bomb in her car. Now, despite no charges being laid, because Tori lived two hours away from her in Wisconsin, and there was no evidence of a nail bomb even existing anyway, but regardless, a judge still granted Julissa an order of protection against Tori for two years, meaning he couldn't see his son either. So again, Tori is penalised even though he is the person not doing anything wrong. Towards the end of this two-year order of protection, five-year-old Eli would be removed from Julissa's care. Julissa and a former boyfriend, Robert Pickeranian, had rekindled their romance, and they would get together to use whatever drugs they could get their hands on. And to get said drugs, they would steal them. Except in 2021, Julissa would get caught stealing from a health clinic. After her arrest, police drug-tested her, and she tested positive for methadone and oxycodone. She wouldn't go to jail for this. This wouldn't be the reason she lost to Eli. But Julissa failed to do everything she was requested to do. She failed to attend court-ordered mental therapy. She was kicked out of a mandatory parenting class. And she was forced to change drug-testing facilities because of her bizarre behaviour. It would be after the police attended her home 21 times in 10 months that CPS stepped in and removed Eli. Unfortunately, this didn't mean he would automatically be placed with Tori, because in Minnesota, unwed fathers have no custodial rights to their children. Another blow to Tori, who desperately wanted to be in his son's life. So Eli was placed in foster care and with Julissa's cousin, Nikita Kronberg. This would be Eli's home for the next 11 months, and he would be loved and cared for, and finally have some stability after his life so far had been pure chaos with his mother. And most importantly, he could finally have a relationship with his dad, Tori Hart. Eli Hart was born with a rare genetic disorder known as Towns-Brock syndrome, which required him to have several surgeries during his first few months of life. Eli wore hearing aids and had a few minor deformities, nothing really that stopped him from being a rambunctious, happy little boy. I legitimately fell in love with this kid in my research for this story. He is the sweetest. He was kind and compassionate. He loved those in his circle hard, and you could not help but love him back. He was always full of energy, and he asked all of the questions wanting to understand everything that was happening in the world around him. He was talkative and inquisitive. At the time our story takes place, 
Eli had studied kindergarten at Shirley Hills Primary School and he had so many friends. He would come home and tell his aunt Nikita he wanted to be a firefighter when he grew up. Nikita never tired of hearing Eli's stories. Quote, He was everything to me. He completed my life. He just loved spending time with me and I loved spending time with him. Unquote. He was an amazing kid. He was full of energy, always smiling. He so outgoing. He always wanted to befriend everyone. Eli loved blowing bubbles, swinging on the swing sets at the park, eating his favourite food, meatballs. He loved matchbox cars. He had just started to learn how to fish and ride his bike without training wheels. But most of all, what captured his heart the most was his dad. The two just immediately had a special bond from the moment they met. It was like they were each other's half, soulmates if you will. It was like they just belonged together and just got each other. Tori's fiancé, Josie, would later state that she loved watching the two of them together. How Eli always wanted to be placed on top of his father's shoulders. And even though at five years old he must have been getting heavy, Tori obliged for as long as Eli wanted. All he really was was a dad that wanted to be in his son's life. And that brings us to December 2021. The order of protection had expired and Julissa was able to contact Tori once more and they spoke about what was best for Eli's future. And Julissa would actually say she supported Tori and Josie adopting him and raising him. And I wish more than anything that could have happened. We wouldn't be here today if that was the case. Eli would now be seven years old and still amazing and still happy and most importantly, he'd still be alive. But for reasons unknown, Julissa would do a complete 180 and the accusations would start once again. Eli had been returned to Julissa's care for a home trial. And she claimed Eli had told her that during one of his visits with his father, Tori had said if Julissa won full custody, he was going to, quote, make mummy disappear, unquote and that it was Tori's influence which had caused Eli's recent behavioural issues at school. That he'd been hitting and biting other children and regressed in his toileting. He was wetting himself. Now, there is no evidence any of this was the case. But what it did do was create a doubt in the court's minds if he was a good fit for custody of Eli. And it meant there'd be another order of protection for Tori to fight. And the flow-on effect of this... Tory would use up any access to public assistance, meaning then he couldn't use that for the custody battle. Julissa knew how to manipulate this system, and she knew how to hurt Tory. She didn't care about Eli and what was best for him, as long as she was... Happy would be the wrong word, because there is no way this woman would have been happy. I think Emma Kenny said it best in her coverage of this story. Julissa just wanted to win, and she didn't care who was collateral damage to achieve this, even if her son Eli had to pay for that with his life. And while all of this was going on and apparently Julissa wanted Eli, she was doing everything she could to sabotage her chances. She would recount an episode that happened just before Eli went to live with his aunt Nikita. And honestly, this sounds like a psychotic episode on Julissa's part, but anyway... But somehow Julissa got locked out of the home, and Eli had smeared eggs all over the floor. But because of that, it was Eli's fault that CPS took him away. 
and it seemed Eli was almost scared of his mother. He would hide behind furniture to avoid her and refuse to talk to her. At first, the home trial was only two days a week, and after Eli's time had finished with his mother and he went home to his aunt, this was when he would have bathroom accidents. It had nothing to do with Tori. Police were still attending Julissa's home up to two times a week for domestic disturbances. Neighbours would report banging and screaming. And when emergency services attended, Julissa would faint or have some sort of health problem and had to be taken to the hospital. Again, I don't understand how CPS and the family court can know all of this and go, oh yeah, it seems like a perfect place to raise a six-year-old. Social workers wouldn't see the same behaviour and reaction from Eli when he was with Tori. They called him a stabilising force for Eli. In their reports, it is said, quote, Mr Hart provides age-appropriate toys and activities. During these visits, Eli is smiling, talkative, energetic, and he seems to enjoy the time with his dad, unquote. And Julissa's family, too, noticed a drastic contrast in Eli's behaviour depending which parent he was with. Family members would make statements to CPS, fearing that if Eli was returned to Julissa on a permanent basis, she would seriously harm him. Julissa's own father, George Thala, was in particular worried about his grandson's well-being. Quote, I'm very, very, very concerned for Eli. I'm terrified about Julissa. She's got many arrests for assault and dangerous behaviour, put Eli in very dangerous situations. I'm just saying there's a very, very long history. He's got high needs, a very good kid. I don't think she's capable of giving him what he needs by any stretch, and that's it. Unquote. Even Julissa's own family, they were all in support of Tori being awarded full custody of this sweet, sweet boy. There are some stories where I am, I can somehow reason with myself that social services had to work within the system and sometimes due to legislative red tape, that social services had to work within the system. CPS's hands are somewhat tied. Eli's situation, though, here is a father who would give him the most amazing life. Oh, so you don't want to give him to his dad? You want to believe his mother's crazy accusations? Fine. Then leave him with his aunt Nikita, who would later state in her victim impact statement that Eli became more like a son to her and a brother to her two sons. Quote, Eli meant the world to so many people. He was so kind and so amazing, always had a smile on his face. Unquote. It's clear there were other options. What happened here did not need to happen, and it hurts me to my core that I'm going to take you on this horrific journey. I just want to stop and take Eli myself and save him, but I can't and we can't. We can just learn and hope against hope this doesn't happen to another child. But we all know the system is so broken, and Eli's story will continue to happen time and time again. If everyone only knew what Jalissa's next action would be, they would have removed Eli in an instant. Because March 17, 2022, Jalissa purchased a shotgun. Jalissa allegedly asking the salesperson for the ammunition that would, quote, blow the biggest hole in something, unquote, and then buying 40 rounds. It was during this time Jalissa would be a regular at the shooting range with her boyfriend slash drug buddy Robert Pickeranian. But she told him the reason for buying the gun was because she needed protection. And that brings us to May 10th, 2022. 
Despite all those damn red flags, despite all the statements from Tory and Josie and Julissa's own family, Dakota County Judge Tim Wemanger removed Eli from the state's protection and recommended he be returned to his mother's care, something Eli's social worker and court-appointed guardian did not challenge. Social worker Beth Denner actually wrote a glowing recommendation for Julissa, stating she was taking all her medication and taking Eli to his medical and therapy appointments. Quote, There is no current indication that her son is physically unsafe in her care. Unquote. He was so safe in Julissa's care that 10 days after this decision was made, this amazing little six-year-old would be dead. I actually read an interview WCCO Radio had with an independent family attorney who wasn't involved with this story, but said something that has stuck with me in regards to Eli. Quote, The goal of Child Protection Court is to reunite the child with their parent. It's very difficult to terminate parental rights. There has to be a large amount of evidence. It's everyone's worst nightmare to get that wrong. And unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Unquote. Sometimes feels like one time too many for me, especially with stories like this. So Eli went back into the chaos of life with his mother without any respite, without any fun visits with his father to look forward to, without returning to the safety of his aunt Nikita's home to look forward to. It would have been just instability and fear of what was going to happen next, which would have been terrifying for this child. And the reports to CPS kept coming in, Eli's kindergarten teacher placed reports because Eli would turn up to school without his hearing aids, or he would tell her he hadn't been sleeping much. Tori would FaceTime with his son twice a week and he'd be wearing the same clothes. This little boy was obviously being neglected and no one who could do anything did do anything. It was only days later that the case would be reopened and Tori would finally be able to fight to get his son back. All these new reports were enough for the judge to go, OK, well, maybe I made a mistake, but it would be all too late. Julissa got wind of this, and she was never going to allow this to happen. Julissa would begin a disturbing Google search, including subjects like how much blood can a child lose, as well as life insurance policies for her son. Julissa would also be seen on CCTV footage going in and out of her apartment carrying a grey blanket with an object concealed underneath. The object would later be determined to be her new shotgun, almost rehearsing what would ultimately be the murder of her own son. Ten days after Julissa regained custody of Eli, according to Julissa's boyfriend Robert, he went with her to pick Eli up from school. They picked up some pizza for dinner and he was planning to play some Xbox with Eli. But then Julissa and Eli got into an argument. Eli didn't want to go to bed and he was yelling at his mother. At a frustration, Julissa hit her son and Eli hit her back. Because learnt behaviour. He had learned from his mother that's how you handle this situation. No wonder he was allegedly hitting and biting children at school because that's how Julissa had taught him to handle a disagreement. Julissa chooses this moment to put her plan into action. She takes the shotgun and wraps it in the grey blanket, takes it out of the car and places it in the trunk, just like she had practised. Robert assumed that Julissa had gone to cool off and as things had subsided, he goes to bed. He would later tell police he heard Julissa go back into the living room and she takes Eli downstairs to her car. 
Robert then said he fell asleep and he didn't awake until after eight the next morning. Julissa was already up and Eli wasn't there. He just assumed that Eli was already at school and he didn't really question it any further. But he does ask her where she went the night before, to which Julissa replies she had something to do and it's left at that. Earlier that same day, 7.11am, police respond to reports that a car is driving erratically, with the car driving on one of its car rims without a tyre and a broken rear windscreen. It is Julissa. The police pull her over for a routine traffic stop, because it was dangerous what she was doing, and it was immediately apparent Julissa wasn't in good shape. She looked very dishevelled and she is covered in blood. On her face, in her hair, on her hands and clothes. When police ask her about it, she bizarrely blamed it on removing a tampon, which, I mean, if someone is bleeding that much from removing a tampon, there's a whole other medical emergency going on here. But that wasn't all. When police looked into the back of the vehicle, there was not only blood, but meat-like tissue matter in the vehicle. Julissa's reasoning behind this was she had bought some deer meat the day prior from the butcher and had gotten all over the back seat. But then something happens that blows my mind, because this whole situation is very strange and suspicious, but they just drive Julissa home. Despite there being all that blood and tissue matter in the car and on her, they let her go without further question. Someone please explain that to me, because never in a million years does that make any sense to me. The police would claim they did so because Julissa was growing impatient and cold and refusing to sit in the squad car. So... That isn't a reason to let a person under suspicion for at least driving an unsafe vehicle walk away without an examination of the vehicle first, in my opinion anyway. Regardless, they leave Julissa at the apartment and tow her vehicle back to the police impound lot where they give the vehicle a thorough examination and what they would find, I don't think anyone could ever prepare themselves for. So this morning at about 7.09am, officers received a call from an individual stating that car was driving on a rim with a shattered out back or smashed out back window. Officers made a traffic stop about two minutes later when they uh, observed the car driving on Shoreline Drive near the intersection of Bartlett. They stopped the individual, identified the female driver during and through the investigation they identified blood and what looked like other um, material inside the vehicle. Uh, after some time of investigations, they determined and located a body inside the trunk. Police pop open the trunk, and it is here. Police see a shotgun next to a grey blanket. Wrapped in the grey blanket was the lifeless body of six-year-old Eli Hart. The tissue matter and the blood on Julissa and on the back seat of the car was Eli, and the broken back screen was from a gunshot. Also found in the vehicle was a shotgun shell, a spent shell casing, and a bullet hole in the back seat itself. Now there was some urgency to find the woman they had just let walk away, and the police drive back to Jalissa's apartment to arrest her. Of course, she is now left, but police would find in a washing machine the clothes she was wearing when they last saw her. I guess for Jalissa in an attempt to destroy evidence, but I don't know. I would think Eli deceased in the trunk of her car with her shotgun is all the evidence police needed. It isn't long before they find her because she doesn't have a car. She and Robert are having a romantic stroll down by a nearby lake when police caught up with them. And despite Julissa changing her clothes and washing them in an attempt to clean herself from what she did, 
She didn't wash her hair, which still had blood all through it. Julissa Thala would be immediately arrested under suspicion of murder. With Julissa in custody, the police started their investigation into what actually happened here. Thankfully, due to Julissa driving on the rim of her car, it made tracing her route to where they pulled her over very easy. There was damage to the road. Along the way, they found a massive industrial bin, and inside they find more horrific pieces of the puzzle of what happened to Eli. They find Eli's school bag, with his schoolwork still inside, and his lunchbox. They are covered in blood. They find bone fragments with tissue matter still attached, thought to be from Eli's skull. And Eli's car seat, damaged from the shotgun blast. Eli being restrained in his car seat when his mother killed him. And the thought of that. He would have been looking right at her and not understanding why she was doing this or what was going on. This breaks my heart and my mind is having a hard time reconciling how a parent can do this. How you can look your child in the eyes, knowing they rely on you for everything. That regardless what you have done, they still love you unconditionally. The fear that would have been radiating from this little boy. How could she still have pulled that trigger? Not once, but multiple times. I can't, I won't try to understand. Eli's autopsy would determine cause of death was gunshot wounds to the head and torso, at point-blank range. In total, the medical examiner determined Julissa shot her son nine times. Guys, I cover a lot of brutal murders on this podcast, but I am really struggling here. Julissa would be charged with second-degree murder. Prosecutors offered her a plea deal a 40-year sentence in exchange for her pleading guilty for the murder. Then she declines the offer, arguing she is innocent and wasn't the person responsible for killing her son. Her defence lawyer Brian Leary, arguing that while Jalissa may have witnessed Eli's murder, she wasn't the one to pull the trigger. Quote, She wasn't charged with the crime they have proven. She destroyed evidence, lied to the police, ran away. But there is nothing that can be proven beyond reasonable doubt that the gun was in her hands when it was fired nine times into her son. Unquote. But then the question has to be asked if she didn't shoot Eli, why didn't she contact the police that someone had done so? Considering his body was in her trunk and she was just casually driving around, why is there surveillance footage that exists of Julissa holding Eli's car seat? scooping out part of what was left of her son's brain and throwing it into the dumpster. None of that makes sense. Now, the defence would argue this was because of a deteriorating mental state, but then Julissa refused to cooperate with attempts to give her a competency evaluation to determine if she was fit to stand trial and could understand the court's charges and processes. And in September 2022, a court determined that she was, with upgraded charges of first-degree murder. February 3rd, 2023, the trial commences. Tori, Josie and Nikita all attended every day of the trial, which would have been horrific for them to hear what this amazing little boy went through. Defence lawyer Brian Leary actually had the audacity to request that Jalissa be allowed to leave the courtroom before the graphic photos of Eli were shown. Obviously, the judge denied this request, because why should she get special treatment for this? She was the reason they were all there, and the reason why Eli wasn't alive, 
the jurors there were that traumatised hearing and seeing their evidence. They have been excused from ever having to sit another jury again and they were offered counselling. Julissa did not take the stand in her defence, nor did the defence call any witnesses for their side because simply there wasn't any. There was no one who could say she didn't do it. Her own family had warned CPS before Eli was returned to her 10 days before he died that this was exactly what was going to happen. There was no one to speak highly of her character. Everyone who knew Julissa knew exactly what kind of vile human she was. As far as motives go, Assistant Hennepin County Attorney Dan Allard put forward several, including Julissa killing Eli for life insurance money. Her internet searches supported this, and she actively tried to get hundreds of thousands of dollars in life insurance for Eli, which was declined. Her deteriorating mental health was another, although this is debatable. That reason doesn't stick with me. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. It was all too calculated and premeditated to be a mental break, in my opinion. And another possible motive was from the stress of the custody battle with Tori. And again, I think that would only come into factor if Julissa thought Tori might have been successful in that custody battle. Because there was no way she was going to let him win. Julissa never cared about Eli, but she sure as hell didn't want Tori to have him either. Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty would go on to call this case one of the most horrific she'd worked on in her 30-year career. Quote, Nothing will ever fill the emptiness Eli's father and other loved ones now have to live with every day. But I'm hopeful this verdict will make it a little easier to remember Eli as a toothless, happy, smiling boy we have seen in photos. Unquote. Victim impact statements are always so raw and heartbreaking, and this trial was no different. Josie spoke on behalf of Tori, who was visibly distraught, standing by his now wife's side but unable to speak. Quote, You could see the love and bond shared every second they were together. Nothing will be the same. The pain will never go away. Unquote. Everyone knows Eli Hart as the victim of this senseless and horrific crime. But Eli was so much more. Eli was an amazing six-year-old boy who always woke up full of energy and laughter. He was kind, made friends easily, loved reading books. Eli had a love for animals that was very special. Eli explored, played outside, fished with his dad. Eli was an innocent, loving six-year-old boy. He did not deserve this. Eli deserved to grow up and have a safe and happy life. We know these things about Eli because he was our little boy, our son, the center of our world. The love and connection he had with his son, that Tori had with his only son, was something I was privileged to see. You could see the love and bond they shared every second they were together. They had this extra spark between them that everyone could see. Now we only have memories. And they are not enough. Time was taken from us. A lifetime of memories to be made gone. The moment 
moments I treasured as being a parent myself. Tori will never have those experiences. A lifetime without Eli robbed of us. School milestones that we will never get to see, like graduating kindergarten and elementary school. All the artwork he would have brought home and put on the fridge, taken. The first day of middle school and high school, prom, graduation, watch him play sports, teach him to drive, stolen from us. Watching Eli grow and become a young man and what he could have been and done in this world. We will never have those memories. No more hugs, no more snuggles. They were ripped from us. Straight from our souls. On May 20th, 2022, at about 11.30 p.m., when an officer knocked on our door and asked to come in, then asking Tori to have a seat, the cries from my husband broke my heart in a million pieces, and then listening to the officer tell me what happened broke it into a million more. Watching my husband sob as his brother tried to comfort him, watching the officer's hands shake while he tried to write down his number on a small piece of paper was the moment I knew our lives had shifted forever, that nothing would ever be the same, the pain will never go away, this will forever affect our day-to-day -day lives. You can't explain the loss of your only son. You can't explain what that does to you or anyone. Then, having lost him in such a horrific way, you just can't explain how that changes your life. How the pain is so deep you can't breathe. How nothing in your life looks or feels the same. And no one understands. Your lack of sleep at night, the nightmares of how Eli was murdered. The struggle to go to work every day knowing Eli has no more days. How painful it is that life just keeps moving and doesn't slow down for us to grieve. No one should ever have to feel this kind of pain or experience, this kind of trauma. But we have been sentenced to a lifetime of this pain, confusion, grief, sorrow, and trauma. A lifetime without Eli. The little boy who would laugh and giggle and squeal so hard when he and his dad would play at the park. It's a sound I hope never fades from our memory. The little boy who rescued a panfish that was stuck on shore when he was fishing with his dad. Um, the little boy who rescued the, okay, just a second, I'm sorry. The little boy who rescued a baby panfish who was stuck in the shore when he was fishing with his dad. He was so proud. He came running in to tell me all about it, but couldn't get his words out because he was so excited. He was so proud. The little boy who would tell me not to be scared of bees, that they were nice and we need them. The little boy that loved being on his dad's shoulders, the little boy who when we asked him who loves you the most, 
would always reply, you both do. There are no more triple hugs, no more I love you, no more memories to be made, just emptiness. You were the happy six-year-old boy, our little boy, that we loved so deeply. For me, it was Nikita, who was there for Eli for almost a year, and was the person who would reunite father and son together. She became very attached to this amazing kid and loved him unconditionally. She spoke of her son's devastation over losing Eli, and how a youngest child no longer wanted to go to school because his cousin wouldn't be there anymore. That she felt guilty she hadn't been able to save Eli from his own mother. Quote, to this day... I blame myself for not saving Eli when I was fostering him. I should have documented things better, taken photos or videos of Eli and any encounters I had with this monster. How could someone do such an evil thing to an amazing, loving kid? Unquote. Go back in time and go visit Eli, give him one last hug and kiss, one last, one last time of seeing that big toothless smile, one last time of hearing his giggles. One last time of saying goodnight, pumpkin. Eli will forever be missed by so many people that loved him. He will forever and always be in our hearts. Why would she kill Eli? If she didn't want him, she should have given him to Tori. Judge Kwam was also shaken by Nikita's victim impact statement and spoke directly to her. Quote, you realise it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault at all. The sooner you let go of that, the sooner you can appreciate all the time you did have with Eli. Thank you for what you did for Eli. You made his life better. Unquote. When it comes to the defendant's statement before sentencing, I've heard everything at this point. Apologising for their crimes, apologising for what happened but still declaring innocence, begging for forgiveness, complete silence. Well, I thought I heard everything anyway. Because before sentencing, Judge Kwam asked Jalissa if she had anything to say. Her thoughts wasn't for her only child who was now gone. It wasn't for a man she once loved who was grieving. It was only for herself. Quote, I'm innocent. Fuck you all. You're garbage. Unquote. Yes, I would like to say something. Go ahead. Um, I'm innocent. You all, you're garbage. That's all you're on. February 9th, 2023, after two hours of deliberation, the jury returned the verdict of guilty. Julissa Thala was guilty of the first-degree murder of her six-year-old son, Eli Hart. She will spend the rest of her life locked away without being able to hurt another child, another person. Her sentence, life imprisonment with no chance of parole. A mandatory sentence for first-degree murder in Minnesota. And in the last bit of fuck you and disrespect, she could show her son, Tori, and the rest of their families. As the sentence was being read, she gave the courtroom the finger. Tori and his family want to provide Eli a legacy, so his life meaning isn't just his heartbreaking murder. They currently have a GoFundMe to raise money to build a playground in his name at Surfside Beach in Mound, Minnesota. The Patreon earnings for next month will go to this really important cause. Eli's story has touched me. This kid has gotten under my skin and into my heart. And Tori needs this. He deserves to have this for Eli. Eli deserves this. 
I will place links to this in the show notes and on Facebook. Obviously, there is no pressure to donate, but if you can, it would be very much appreciated. Tory has also launched a lawsuit seeking more than $75,000 in damages against Dakota County CPS for failure to provide adequate child protection for his son, and rightly so. It could be argued they failed to provide any child protection for Eli. Julissa should never have gotten unsupervised custody of this little boy. The red flags were many, and the writing was on the wall with what was going to happen here. But CPS ignored it, and they ripped Eli away from everything that he knew to be safe and that made him happy. And the people that could have saved him didn't. They just signed his death certificate by handing him back to his mother. Something that I hope is that Tori can find peace one day, hopefully with a playground that one day he can share with his and Josie's future children, where they can tell them about their amazing and courageous big brother, a brother they were unfortunate never to meet, a boy that was taken far too soon. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.